All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucking nutters? What the fuck billies? What the fuckleberries? Yeah, how are you? Mark Marin here. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome. Nice to have you. Welcome back. You were here last week. And welcome to all the newcomers. You're in a safe place. <laughs> yeah. It's been a crazy few days. I could tell you about it. My birthday was Tuesday. I turned 53 years old. And I'd like to share with you exactly how that went. I'll tell you some a little bit about my, uh, my secret life that you don't always know about. Sometimes I take gigs. Sometimes I use my skills that I've honed and, and whatever it is that I do in here, sometimes I take them out. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a moderator, a talker to a people for hire on occasion for big events. And, you know, they're, they're not exactly what I do in here, but there's something different and there's a, a different way I can use whatever skill set I've uh, come upon. But, uh, all right, so you guys know on Saturday night I did two shows at the Wilbur. And then uh, Sunday I came home and got my shit together. Monday morning I went to work at the uh, show, shooting glow with the ladies. I shot till about 4.30 took a shower in my trailer, a car came and picked me up, took me to LAX, flew to Dallas, Texas, Uh, got there at one in the morning, checked into the Omni Hotel, which seemed to be uh, situated in some futuristic landscape that seemed to be devoid of a city. I did not see a city. I don't know how Dallas works, but there was no sort of figuring it out then. Checked into a suite, uh, set my phone, had just, all I had was uh, one bag, one night, I just brought a shirt and some underwear and my, uh, my socks, new socks, toiletries. Got up the next morning, slept for about three hours, woke up 6.45, went downstairs, met the guy in charge of the event, uh, met Dr. Michio Kaku, the uh, physicist, and then we went over to the convention center, which is connected to the Omni, to, uh, to be in conversation at uh, shop.org's Retail Digital Summit 2016. We were the keynote event. I was going to talk to Dr. Kaku about the future for 45 minutes. Did a little meet and greet with strangers, took a few photos with the good doctor, then uh, did a dry run, checked the sound, and there we were in a convention center in front of about a 1,000 people. Some of them hungover, some of them eating breakfast, some of them drinking coffee, a lot of them looking at their phones, and we went through the uh, the sort of traditionally stiff keynote speaker at a conference event, and uh, it was a little dicey at first because it's not my uh, it's not necessarily my wheelhouse. But Dr. Kaku is an interesting dude. I should probably get him in here, and but you know he has his uh, his riff. He has his, uh, his angle, his speculations. I have my curiosity. Unfortunately, I'm not always upbeat about the future. And it seems to me that everything that could be seen as a positive about the future can be horrifying. So I played with the idea of, of interviewing him in front of a, uh, a hopeful and uh, excited uh, room full of digital retailers. And just everything he talked about happening, uh, I would just go, oh, God, no. No, not that. Oh, God. You mean they'll just be able to read our minds? We're just going to have a contact lens 
in our eye that we can blink and shop with and go on the internet. Oh God, what about our souls? I didn't do that. I played ball. We had a nice chat. It got interesting because there is a, you know, he sort of, he has a, a few angles that he works. And then at some point I just broke down and went straight up WTF on him. And I said, tell me what, what is a day? What is, what does a physicist do in a day? And he was very funny. He said, basically, we try to uh, finish up where Einstein left off. And that set me up for a couple of nice jokes. And I woke up the people. Everyone seemed to enjoy themselves. Then I got out, spent an hour sitting, trying not to fall asleep, got a car, went back to the airport, flew home. That was my birthday morning. Yeah, exciting stuff. Got Some part of me thinks I should have went, oh, no, I can't. No, you mean you'll be able to talk to all your appliances? Oh, God. What about humanity? Did not do it. Next time. I'll tell you, maybe when I get him in here. Maybe when I get him in here. Today on the show, the Honorable John Prine, one of uh, America's great songwriters, uh, will be here to talk. Uh, I was definitely uh, humbled and uh, excited to talk to Mr. Prine. I'd seen him... A while back, uh, when I went to see uh, that Bright Eyes kid, he was good. But speaking of music, the singer-songwriter Margot Price, who I love, uh, will be on the show here in a couple weeks. But uh, she's a great country artist, and she's new, and she's just uh, spectacular. And she's heading out on tour this weekend. She starts in Austin, Texas this Sunday, and then she's heading out all over the country. Go to margoprice.net for tour dates and tickets. I love her. It's one that her album, her first album, the solo album on uh, Third Man, is one of the great, great country records. And I'll stand behind that against any country record. Okay? You hearing me? By the way, I just want to reiterate, I, did, I, I tried to watch a bit of the debates on my phone, but I was traveling. But I got the gist of it. And again... I want to state in the most sensitive and empathetic way possible. I understand uh, some of my listeners are Republicans and we all have different opinions uh, about who should be leader, what the world should be. Maybe maybe some of us have like-mindedness. But I do want to state in a different tone, just as a public service with an open heart, that if you believe in Donald Trump, if you believe in him, period, not think he's a good leader, not anything else, because I, I, I can't even register that. If you believe in him and that he is the right guy and the and a good man to be president of the United States, I just want to say this kindly, you're a fucking moron. See, now that was a little condescending. Let me let me try to do it empathetically. You're a fucking moron. Um, no, it's still a little, it's hard to say that. Um, I'm sorry, but no, see, that's that's not the right tone. Well, you're a fucking moron and um, and you're a sucker. See, that, it's hard to, hard to say those kind of words that are very descriptive and don't mean good things about a person. But uh, but you, you get the idea. Yeah, I, I think, and it's not a matter of whether you like Hillary or not. Many, you, you don't. And it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or not. Because if you're a Republican and you're going to support him for any reason, um you're an embarrassment to your uh, party and you're a fucking moron and a sucker. Is that nice? Seriously. Seriously. 
I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't care what you do with your vote. Just if you, if you put it with him, moron, sucker, bad American. That's all the politics for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed that political moment. Uh, oh, also, here's a little something about me. Another part of my secret life, but I think I might have brought this up. Uh, I'm in a movie that's opening. If you want to check it out, it's called Flock of Dudes. It comes out tomorrow nationwide to select theaters, and you can uh, get it on iTunes. Uh, I'm in it with Chris D'Elia, Eric Andre, Hannibal Buress, Brett Gelman, Jeffrey Ross, Kumail Nanjiani, and Ray Liotta. It's a hell of a cast. Go to flockofdudesmovie.com to check out the trailer and get tickets. I felt that confidently funny in the one scene that I had. I know I was funny. I know I was wearing a tie. So I'll, I'll, I, I know that. And I do know that at that time, uh, Eric Andre and I were not getting along. And as some of you who listen to the show regular, regularly, uh, you know that we, uh, we made up. We are getting along now. And everything is uh, copacetic. So, you want to know more about my birthday? I had an amazing dinner. I'm just, you know, easing into John Prine. My mommy called me on my birthday and sang happy birthday in a little girl voice. Not on purpose. It was nice of her, but it makes me a little uncomfortable. My dad called me to tell me he was driving across country. He was in Ohio and that... Uh, that Carnegie Hall should be great for me because everything sounds good there from what he hears. The acoustics are very good. So that was a, a positive thing. My brother wished me a happy birthday. So many people wish me a happy birthday. It's nice. I'm 53. I think I feel like this is a pivotal age. I feel like that um, I'm entering old madness in earnest, 53. I'm not saying I'm an old man, but this is a transition. I'm now 50-something as a, a woman on Twitter said, now I'm officially 50-something. I don't have a problem with it. I don't feel that much different. I think my knees are, are, are giving out a little bit, though. But maybe that's just today. I don't know. I'm tired. So, Sarah and I went out to... Uh, I don't, you know the actor Andre Royo? Well, he's been a guest on this show. And way back when he was a guest on this show, he played Bubbles on The Wire. Great actor. And he had mentioned that his wife, Jane Choi has this restaurant in Atwater called uh, Canalay. I hope that's how you pronounce it. But the place was fucking great. Was fucking, I'm just going to tell you about the food. They make these giant ciabatta breads that are astounding. They're moist with like olive oil and they're crispy on the outside. And for an appetizer, we got a melon and cucumber salad with some feta cheese on it and a plate of shishito peppers you know, pan fried, pan roasted with an egg on top with garlic in it, maybe some shallots in there. I'm not sure. And then I ordered a, a salt roasted branzino and there's this sort of parsley, uh, onion and caper salad that comes with it. And Sarah got this vegetarian uh, chickpea dish with some sort of chickpea pancake, I believe. And then for dessert, it came out with candles. So that phone call paid off came out because they knew it was my birthday a ricotta pound cake with fresh whipped cream and strawberries and a few candles on it spectacular and i've decided fuck it man what good is life if you don't eat ricotta pound cake when it's available or ricotta cheesecake for that matter and i want to thank uh andre and his wife jane for uh treating me to dinner that was very nice and unexpected
And I'm doing it publicly because I believe. I believe. I like that restaurant. It was fucking good. Now, John Prine, an American master, an amazing storyteller, an amazing songwriter, a beautiful guitar player, a guy with a history, a man who has been humbled in a lot of ways and uh, has a beautiful, slightly cynical, slightly dark, poetic take on humanity. I mean, he's amazing. He's put out, I think, over 20 albums in his career and his new album coming out tomorrow. It's called For Better or Worse. It's an album of duets. He's singing with Alison Krauss, Miranda Lambert, Fiona Prine, Amanda Shires. You can get it on iTunes and Amazon and wherever you get music. And Prine, like, here's the thing that I realized about John Prine. All his songs are terrific. But he's one of those guys, not unlike a lot of musicians I've talked to, where a lot of people know him for a few songs. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know why? You know why? Because like even on his first fucking album, 1971, okay? The first album, I believe it was self-titled. On that record, you have Sam Stone and you have Angel from Montgomery. Sam Stone and Angel from Montgomery are two of the greatest American songs ever written. No doubt. There's no arguing that. Like, I listened to Sam Stone before I talked to Prine. Tears. Tears. Every fucking time I listen to it. Angel from Montgomery, whether he's singing it or whether Bonnie Raitt's singing it. Mind-blowing. Deep emotion. Not quite tears with Angel from Montgomery because uh, there's something confident about that one. Sam Stone is just brutal and beautiful. And Dear Abby, Six O'Clock News, Hello in There. All these songs. Are, are timeless and perfect. And if you can do that in your lifetime, if you can make one or two or five, you know, or, or up to 20, as John has, amazing things that will outlive you and, and be timeless, what else, what more can you do? You've done it. But I'll tell you, man, just listen to Do me a favor. After you listen to me talk to John, Go listen to uh, Sam Stone and then listen to uh, Angel from Montgomery and then listen to Hello in there. Now, there's a lot of other songs and I, I know that if you're a John Prine fan, you're like, come on, dude. Those are just the big ones. Everyone knows those. That's okay. A lot of people listening might never have heard of John Prine and I'll go with those. I'll go with those. Sam Stone, man. Ah, uh, anyways, it was a complete mind-bending honor to talk to John Prine and that's what you're going to listen to me do right now. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do with the clutter. You you got a room like this at, at home? Where 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 is that? Any, uh, I live in Nashville. Yeah. Any room that they leave to me, my wife leaves to me. <laughs> yeah. I love it when she goes in to straighten it up. I yeah. Can't, I can't find anything if she straightens <laughs> it up, you know. There's, a, there's an order to it, and it's sort of, it's cozy. You know, the more stuff you're surrounded by from your life, what do you got in there? Um, junk, basically. Yeah. But I think it's really important for some yeah. reason, because I've kept it, and uh, about every three years I'll find something I haven't seen in years and years. Yeah. 
and I'll, I'll put it back. Yeah. Don't, why I don't throw it away, I don't know. But I don't, You know, I wonder about that too, you know, when I sit in here, because I think like, uh, you know, maybe I could just get rid of a lot of this stuff. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, I, I don't know if I take time to look at it or not, but like you said, sometimes you have that moment with something and it'll take you somewhere, even if it's for a second. And I just don't want to turn around and put it in a wastebasket. Right, or throw it away because then, you know, you've lost a, a time travel machine. Yeah, I mean, it would be good if it was like cash or something you stashed away right, and right, forgot right. about it. The surprise cash. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I have any of that. <laughs> Do you? Uh, it, no, I haven't found it yet. <laughs> How long have you lived down there? Lived in Nashville since 1980. I moved there from... Uh, Chicago. I was born and raised in the western suburbs of uh, Chicago. Yeah, like what? Now, what town? Maywood. Yeah, was right, it right off of Madison? So we were neither north side or south side. Like we were half a block off of Madison. Yeah, and what? Uh, what did your What did your old man do? He was a tool and die maker at the American Can Company. Oh, really? Yeah, he'd moved up there in the '30s from. Uh, Western Kentucky, uh-huh. uh huh, to get factory work because there was no, unless you uh, wanted to work in the mines or your family had a little business or something, there wasn't really a lot of work in uh huh in uh, that part of Kentucky. So him and a lot of his cousins and stuff drifted up towards Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago for factory work. Uh huh. And if you did get work, you usually sent for somebody else back home, and they'd come live with us and. They'd try it out and either move back to... My dad always thought that he was going to go back to Ken, Kentucky, so he raised us as if we were from Kentucky, even though we were born and raised in the Chicago area. And what what is that? What does that mean to be raised like you're from Kentucky? Well, yeah, he always thought that he was going to make enough money to move back there. Right. But like... Uh, he rented the same house yeah. for 38 years. He could have paid for it three times, you know. <laughs> so in his mind... Yeah. We, you're gonna, we're all going back. Right. He, he, uh, I remember in particular, uh, they asked us at school, this is like third grade or something, yeah. uh, go home and find out what your origins are, what, where your parents are, uh-huh. are from, what countries. And a little girl in front of me, next day in school, a little girl in front of me stands up and goes... Well, my mother's family's from Sweden, and my father's family's from Germany. Yeah. And I stand up, and I go, pure Kentucky and the last of a dying breed. <laughs> you know, that's what my dad taught us to say. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there was a, a Southern pride. Yeah, but we, but we were Chicago kids. And, yeah. But we sure appreciated Kentucky because of his and his and our mother's enthusiasm for the area. That's where they were both from. And and is that what – now, what kind of what kind of um, – situation was there down there because i i don't know much about kentucky but i'm always taken with hearing stories about the the south because there seems to be a much more elaborate and sometimes gothic history of that uh, region like i've been to lexington but i don't know what that's totally different right that's going towards eastern kentucky and lexington is very um well because of the horse farms mm-hmm. and everything it's it's kind of high class yeah high class but also not far from lexington is You'll find towns that aren't, you know, they're just oh, barely yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. a few, a you few know, miles and, away, there's a little, it, not much indoor plumbing necessarily. In eastern Kentucky, yeah, far eastern, right by the West Virginia border, that's even, that's totally different. That's real Appalachia. That's Hatfields and McCoys. That's, yeah. You know, it's, sure. And where was your family from? They were western part of Kentucky, like um, 
I live in Nashville now, yeah. and if I go 90 miles straight north, mm-hmm. you're, I'm in Muhlenberg County, and that's where my parents you're, are from. You're in the land of your origin. Exactly. And do you did you grow, uh, when you were growing up, did you spend time down there? Did your grandfolks? Yeah, they m- mainly in the summer times. Yeah? Uh, I'd go down and visit aunts and uncles. and Big family. Uh, my granddad, and big family, and uh, we've always, we still have a family uh, reunion where we all, uh-huh. these are all, all the uh, my mom's sisters and my dad's family—they're all gone. Uh huh. And um, the cousins still get together. You know, your cousins. Yeah. Oh. You know, and some of them you, you haven't met before. Their children. Their, sure. Their grandchildren. It was kind of the idea my mother told me as we were growing up and going to the family reunion that she always hoped that after their day had gone, that the kids once a year tried to get together and keep in touch with your with your family, which is mostly a good idea. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's very interesting. It's like Thanksgiving and Labor Day. You know? Right. So, so, so are we talking, uh, you know, uh, 50, 100s, 30? Sometimes it's as little as 30. Yeah. And sometimes it'll be up around 90. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, you know, and um, what's great now is a lot of them I hardly know. I have to ask the kid, little kids, I don't know who yeah. you are. Right. But it goes over a period of three, four days. We spend it right. together. In, in this, Kentucky. Yeah. Is there still family property there, or you just meet there? No, there's no family property. No, nobody had <laughs> nobody had any savings, let alone family property, you know? And where did you, where did you first hear... Uh, hear the music that that moved you to 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 do music like your your grandfather what kind of man was he i don't uh, know if they're connected but I'm, I'm placing it in kentucky uh both my grandfathers were from kentucky yeah one was a carpenter that was my father's father and as soon as he would get done with the job yeah he would pull his family up and move oh yeah to the next city for the next carpenter job uh-huh and my dad went to something like nine different elementary schools uh-huh up north and down in the south yeah he had a southern accent he stuttered and he was the new kid in school oh no so he said he learned how to fight like right away you know <laughs> tough tough guy yeah and uh and and who played music any what was the music in the house uh it was the radio my dad loved country music and he'd yeah. play he'd play he'd sit at night and uh he'd drink beer by the court because he claimed uh it was more like draft beer uh-huh. You know, if you sat sure. there and poured a glass of, yeah. from the court, yeah. and he'd have the radio sideways, an old zenith in the kitchen window, yeah. facing the south. And we had a good country station in Chicago, WJJD, but uh, on the weekends you could pick up the Grand Ole Opry. If, if you tilted the, it right? The weather was yeah. right, and you tilted it right. <laughs> and he'd sit in there with his quarts of beer and have me sitting next to him with an orange pop and... I've been listening to Webb Pierce and Johnny Cash. And, yeah. You know, Hank Williams Sr. and just uh, all this stuff. And I listened to it because because of my dad's love for it. Uh-huh. You know, I, re- yeah. I realized that many years later. But meanwhile, I was growing up listening to rock and roll. Sure. And I had an oldest, my oldest brother Dave, who's 10 years older than me, decided to teach himself to play guitar and fiddle and mandolin. And he needed somebody to play with him for rhythm. Right, right. So he taught me how to play old-timey country music. Like just uh, three chords? Yeah. Uh-huh. And after I learned them, when I wasn't accompanying him, 
uh, I tried to play my some of my favorite songs. Yeah, and they didn't sound like the records, mm-hmm. so I made up my own words. And that was, was it. I started doing it since I was fourteen. And and his was he playing bluegrass music with those he, instruments? Uh, not quite bluegrass. It's called like it was a, it was a precursor to bluegrass. Uh, There's referred to as old timey music. Uh huh. So like 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 uh like what was what who would those artists be? Oh boy, yeah. Uh, like old timey country, like swing music. Yeah, almost? I'll tell you who revived it was um, uh, during the the big folk thing of the late fifties and early sixties. Yeah, is New Los City Ramblers. Oh, okay, they went and got a lot of those archival stuff. Right, right, and right. Brought them back again. Right. What was their label? I, you know, were they on? Uh... They were on Vanguard. I oh think. yeah, 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 Maybe. yeah. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that it's interesting about that. About that that folk revival and uh, and just sort of this digging through the 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 musical you know pile of America that it was a real conscious thing it was a reaction wasn't it Yeah, I think it was yeah and it seems like it's coming around uh, uh, we spend a lot of time over in Ireland because my wife's from there oh it's, that's the most beautiful place in the world it's gorgeous we're we're getting ready to go over for about a month and a half this summer oh you lucky bastard yeah i love it i love it we we, we got a place in galway in the oh West my Ireland, god you know? I, I i envy you i i, I you know it's like i'm not I've got no roots there, you know. I'm a, yeah. you know, yeah, my roots are Eastern European Jew, and I, for some reason, <laughs> I go to Ireland, and I'm like, I feel like I'm home. This place is, it's beautiful. It, it really is. Does she know? have family there? Yeah, that's what we go back. She's got five sisters still, and, and they're all in Ireland. And her mother, yeah. No kidding. Yeah, they're all in in uh, Ireland, and uh, Fiona and I, we had a long distance romance in the late '80s, early '90s. And, no kidding. And uh, I'd go over there whenever I had more than a week off. How'd you meet her? I met her at, um, I did a couple of shows over there. We did a um, a festival that was around, what they were doing was getting guys like me and Guy Clark and yeah. American folk and uh-huh. singer-songwriters together with Irish bands. Oh, really? And yeah, we yeah. we did about three days in Dublin. At the Vic? No, no, at... Um, this is a venue that became the venue eventually. Oh, the Vicar is what I was at. The Vicar, I think, is yeah, where I was at. Vicar yeah. Street. Uh, this was uh, the old... Uh, uh, it was down by the river. I forget what they called it then. We were the first music in there. It was, it was the old train station, uh-huh, maybe? Uh-huh, And um, So American folk artists with uh, Irish bands. Yeah. and Fiona, I think they're still doing that. Yeah, my wife, Fiona, she worked at, uh, at one of the big studios in Dublin. She managed it. Uh-huh. And um, where you two cut and everything, uh-huh. so she was in on the music scene there, and she came down to hear these things they call the sessions, uh-huh. and that's how we met. Uh-huh. Did yeah. she know you before? Uh, she said she came and saw me when she was sixteen years old. That would have been the first time that I ever played Ireland. Uh huh. And what year and, would that have been? What? What? Never been nineteen eighty. Okay. So she came to see me and. Uh, She's been thinking about you ever since. Well, she had me. I was in the back of her mind, at least. And uh, you made an impression. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was uh, after the sessions. After this thing, they threw a party for all of the artists. Uh huh. And uh, it was a horseshoe-shaped bar. Yeah. And a buddy of mine was standing about ten feet away from me, holding a guitar up and saying, "Hey, John, come on over. Let's play a few tunes." I couldn't physically get from where I was 
to him because the bar was like 10 deep at each. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to go around the long end, the far end of the bar, yeah. and that's where she was standing. Uh-huh. And a little red-headed uh, blues singer that I knew in, in Ireland yeah. introduced, said, come here, John Prine, meet this girl. <laughs> and we've been together ever since. <laughs> so that's sweet. So you guys have been it's been together since 1981, 80, And you've been married before. Twice. That's, yeah. That's the music business. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the music business. You stay, you stay on the road and... Yeah, and those are the songs. That, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sad fact, but it's true. It uh, is, right? Some of the best songs are written, if you're a songwriter, yeah. and somebody breaks your heart, yeah. boy, there's some great songs down there. You know? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there really there, is. Yeah, but you know, you get to a point, maybe I, I don't know if you've gotten to this point, where you're like, I don't know if I need another one. No, I, I, I know I don't. Yeah, I know I don't. You know, sometimes when I'm going through periods and not writing, you yeah, know, you're thinking you know, like, oh, you know, say to me, "What do I, what do I have to do? Leave you in order to get you to write a song?" Yeah. Well, you, when you were writing songs, and uh, the the Ireland uh, thing though, we were sort of talking about uh, uh, folk music. And and I felt like we were moving in a direction where you were about to talk maybe about the folk music of Ireland. I noticed this is about seven, eight years ago yeah. that the buskers on the street out in Galway and uh -huh. Dublin were starting to play the old timey songs. The country songs. The, the no kidding. Like pre bluegrass. Uh huh. That was becoming popular amongst I'm talking about eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds. Yeah. And here I'm going, how did they hear that? You know, right. I, why is that becoming popular again? Isn't that interesting? It really is. You know, and it does it on its own. It's and not, it's also some sort of full circle because those, I, I think those Celtic rhythms are, are definitely part of the Appalachian that's catalog. Where, that's where it started. It came from uh, Scotland and right, Ireland. Those, right, yeah. that, that that rhythm and the, the way of playing. Yeah. And, and I think some of the fiddle too, right? And the and the ballads about taking a girl down to the river and sure. murdering her and drowning her. And <laughs> All those high, those happy Celtic themes. That was a successful date, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But when you started out, so you're listening to Grand Old Opry music and your brother's doing that, that, uh, that type of music, the old-timey music, and your dad's listening to what's becoming... Uh, modern country or or the the great country artists, and you're listening to rock and roll, and the folk explosion certainly hadn't happened yet. And so, what do you kind of what are you fiddling around with? My, uh, I went with the way my brother taught me to play, uh -huh. which was old timey music and bluegrass, right? And and it was familiar to you because you listen to country, yeah. And it, and I would so I wrote my songs with the only. Way I knew how. If my brother would have been a big Chuck Berry fan, right? Maybe I would have learned electric right from the start, right? And wrote my songs to though to a different a blues sort of bass thing. But it was just happened that that's the way he taught me. Yeah, and I wasn't going to go to somebody else and learn how to play rock and roll. Yeah. Well, you're probably better off, you know, given the thoughtfulness of the lyrics and the uh, the sort of uh, you know you want the lyrics to be up front, right? You you know, and, and there's something about country music and uh, that lends itself 
to uh, to to putting the the lyrics up front. It's about the it's about the story. If you're not Chuck Berry, it's hard to tell a story in rock and roll. That, I think a that's true. Story. You know? I think that's really true. And I think like I, I get what you're saying about the because it seems to me that you know just getting back to that you you starting to hear that old time in music on the streets in Ireland sort of led to you know uh, the Mumford and Sons and the right. you know and what in a sort of resurgence of uh, of singer songwriters in that vein. We're seeing a lot of that now. It's it's a it's sort of an amazing thing because your generation of guys or the guys right before you, I mean, there were some heavy dudes around back then that that did uh, that did thoughtful. Uh, you know, I, I think it's primarily country music. I guess you could call it folk music. What do you call your music? Uh, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's country music, right? Yeah, it's. It, but you go to Nashville when I first got to Nashville. And yeah, sang my, I didn't move there. To become a country star, sure. I just moved there because of that's where I was having fun, you know. Well, yeah, and it's interesting though because, like, because your music is you know you know straightforward and and it it does come from that source that I notice in a lot of the records, you know, the tone of the record, you're always going to be you. You're going to write John Prine songs. You're going to play John Prine songs, but depending on who's in the studio with you or who's producing the 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 right. album and what they're going to bring to it it really it, it it changes the sound and i guess uh when you do that like i listened to the record um which one did i listen to pink cadillac yesterday yeah. that you know you're working with some of the sun guys some of phillips guys right. and this and then sam come in and did two two songs on us yeah but this is sam what in his 70s right yeah but he was uh, he was on it he yeah was he's, on it. He, he's a wizard right I, I think initially he came in the studio because he he saw his boys were doing a project and he wanted to kind of give them an extra push. Oh, really? I think so. Uh -huh. I don't think it was my uh, my singing ability that drew Sam Phillips to. But Sam, <laughs> but claims, you were a known guy. It was Sam claims he heard my voice and uh -huh. he thought he'd, he thought it was so bad that he would stick around and try and fix it. <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. He he's is he still around? No, Sam uh, passed about uh, eight nine years ago. I talked to I I talked to Peter Gralnick about his book about Sun Sun Records. Amazing book, I right? Thought, yeah, yeah. It goes all the way back. What was it, when you met him? Did, were you at the the original place in Memphis or? or? Uh, well, they they sold that. Oh yeah, now to like a museum. It became a museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Sam in '61 had built a Sam Phillips recording uh -huh. service on Madison, and that's where we ended up cutting and and what was a because it was a different record i mean the it was a, a, a dramatically different approach right and and when when you were in conversation with someone like sam phillips about your john prine songs you know wh what did he bring to him what did his boys bring to him that what was their idea sam spoke in uh parables uh-huh he, he he looked also like a character from the bible like yeah. he had these big bushy eyebrows <laughs> i think he saw he, himself he as would, a character from he the would bible. get in your face and uh -huh. It looked like the burning bush was behind him, you know. And uh, he he'd tell us like on a ballad, he would say, "Oh, now you boys are walking down the street. You're uh -huh. covering both sides of the street. Uh -huh. That is so nice." And then he'd go, "Now let's talk about sex." Uh -huh. You know? And yeah, yeah. He said, "I want something like." He said, "I want to do push-ups too." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would get like a, like a all of a sudden like a preacher you know no kidding yeah so like uh it was it was pretty it was just cool working with him yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, do, do you like that record i love it yeah I, I love it um when we delivered that record to asylum records out uh -huh. here in la yeah boy they about five guys listened to it and then four of them left the room and 
one guy leaned over to me and he said, John, I don't think what you have here is what you want. And I thought, wait a second, <laughs> what did he just say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they just, uh, they, they, the, the kind of records that were on the charts then was squeaky clean. They were, they were good music now. Steely Dan. Sure. You know, making great records, but right. it was perfect technical stuff. Right. And the Eagles were making perfectly right. technical records. All good music and everything, but I wanted some noise. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted it to sound like five individuals in a room bumping into things. And, yeah. You know, playing. And playing. And Being that's in it. We, we paid for the noise. And they didn't appreciate it. Was that yeah. one of those moments where you're like, I got to start my own label? That, that was probably the beginning of it for me. Uh-huh. I had one more record I owed them, and I went and did it kind of half-hearted and said, that's it. And what, that was uh, the next record? Yeah, Storm Windows, which was actually more songs I'd written for Pink Cadillac. but we Leftovers. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But let's go back because, you, you know, this is a, an amazing thing uh, about your your presence in music and I, and I and I don't know anybody else other than and I don't know if people make this comparison I imagine I'm not that original but it, but uh, that you, there's very few people who are respected for their poetry and for their their their, their songs as much as like you and Leonard Cohen uh, you know Leonard Cohen sort of holds this place he does and and you know there's 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 a, there's about four records there that that you know that are that are undeniable masterpieces and and I think you're the same guy. You're the same place. You know, like I listened to I listened to Sam Stone this morning, uh-huh. and I and I think most people, if they don't know that song, should know that song. So I listen to that song, and I'm crying. You know, again. Right now, you know when when you when you when that song came out of your heart and your mind, and that you know that is one of your most well known songs, and the power of that song transcends. You know, war, conflict, or anything—you you, know—and and speaks to a a darkness and a, and a pain that that is you know uh, eternally human. Right. Do you, what do you think of that song? Do you feel that? Do you feel like if you, if that were the only song you had written, that that you would be like, that's that that's a great song. I, well, I did feel all that about that song yeah. when I wrote it. Also, though, I thought that that song. Um, if somebody would have made me a bet, I would have thought that the appeal of that song might have gone, this was 1971 when yeah. I put it on record. I thought by 75 or 76 that would be a song because some some songs that are, are deemed political, yeah. Yeah. they wear themselves out. You go on the right. time marches on. And I didn't know that that song would stay... Those, those veterans are all still around, and yeah. the veterans from other conflicts are yeah. still coming home, sure. up and right. messed up. They get, they get, uh, oh, they go through all this training to go to combat and then come back, and nobody. It's like people are incarcerated. Yeah, they just throw them back out on the street and say, yeah. "Okay, man, you're a citizen again." Yeah, yeah. good luck. Yeah, good yeah. luck. Yeah. Yeah, if you need some health coverage, we got a place. <laughs> yeah, you can, you come can, check in occasionally. You can find it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, the tragedy of that, and also the tragedy of of you know uh, American life on a certain level too. I mean, there there's something that spoke to that in those songs and and some of the other masterpieces. Uh, you, you know, uh, uh, you know, Angel from Montgomery was uh, another one that that was a window in to a a, a a sort of American heartache that never goes away. You know. Yeah, um, um, when I wrote those songs, I think I was 
trying to explain things to myself uh-huh more so than uh find an audience for it because I, I thought it was a hobby for me i didn't think i was what songwriting this. yeah i didn't think this was something that you could make a living out of uh-huh and and, and and surprise. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but the other thing that's amazing about about the, those songs and about your particular song craft is uh, there's a simplicity to it, but the turns of phrase are so fucking good. <laughs> you know, it's like you deliver the first line of the couplet, and you're kind of like, "What's going to happen?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's so tight, and it's so economic. Now, like, and I and I know you probably hear that about your poetry and about your songwriting a lot. But how much when you sit with a song? Yeah, how much? How much? How much word math do you do? It's um. When you got a good one, yeah, I can hardly write fast enough. Uh huh. I feel like a court stenographer. I feel like I'm taking the song down and putting my name on it. Uh huh. But I was just the first one to hear it, like you know. Yeah, yeah. It comes in like all tied up in a bow. Oh, and, right. So yeah, it's, a whole it's, thing. It's there. Yeah. And there's other ones you got to work on. And, right. And I don't like it when it appears that you've done too much work on it because it shows to me yeah especially with repeated performances yeah of a song where you know you really had to work and patch and glue things you know but don't you think you might be the only one that knows that uh, pro- probably <laughs> probably yeah, yeah. unless i tell somebody they don't know that <laughs> yeah if, like, unless you get off stage and go like i can't listen to that coming out of my head anymore. <laughs> but like the like other songs that make me cry souvenirs wow that you know even you know, even sour grapes, which is a little more, it's not as heavy. But souvenirs is like heavy, man. I mean, you know, it, it's beautiful, but uh, but 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 it's heavy. Now, when you release these things into the world, or where they, or, or when they move through you, do you feel a, a, a relief? You know, do, are you are you are you? Uh, because I saw you in, uh, I saw you here a while back when Connor opened for you. Right at the Greek, yeah, yeah, and that was amazing because you're, you know, you're, you're traveling pretty lean. The band is a, you know, is a guy on on bass, sometimes yes. stand up bass, and that that kind of miraculous guitar player you got there. Yeah, he's, he's great, Jason <laughs> Wilbur. Yeah, and the drummer, and you, and you know, and you know, Connor. What was very funny is that because I talked to Connor, you know, you listen to him, and and he's sort of a natural songwriter. It's a it's a weird natural gift for him. Yes, and and you know, with songwriters, the guys I've encountered. You know, I want them to be heavy-hearted dudes that live a hard life, but some of them they're just they just got a thing. You know, he's got a thing. And he's up there with a full band and he's spitting and dancing and putting everything he's got into it, and it's good, but then you come out, you know, just with your gravitas and you being you and your lean little outfit there and and it everybody quiets down. And it's just a, a, a beautifully balanced evening of a, of a dude that we can all uh, just sort of relax. He doesn't have to jump around. The songs will speak for himself. He's going to say some funny stuff, and we're all going to be moved. Real professional. Well, I'll tell you, it took, it took me a long time to settle down and enjoy that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. First 20 years or so, I, I kept thinking somebody's going to throw something at me or, or stand up and go, what in the hell are you doing up there? You know? Really? Yeah, I mean... That just stayed with me because. Did that happen? Were you playing in those environments? No, not really. I was I was well accepted from the from the get go. But, <laughs> but you just had it I, in your head. It was in my head. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be found out. It was like eight months after I first stepped on a stage that I had a record contract. 
See, that's interesting. I didn't. Uh, I, I sang for the first four months. I didn't quit the post office because I, I was like, "Don't quit your day job." Right. You know? Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. And I started making three times um, the cash that I was making with a regular salary at the post office. I got. I would get that in cash under the table. Yeah. For singing, my that's my hobby. Singing yeah. Songs, three nights a week. Yeah. I could sleep the rest of the week. I was at the pinnacle. Yeah, that was it. You made it. it. (laughs) I'm fooling them. I got it. So that's what you did. So you you were playing songs when you were a kid, and you were playing with your brother, and then you got it. That was your job. You were a mailman? Yeah. How was that for you? It was like being in a library with no books. Uh You'd go out on your mail route and spend six hours out there walking around, and it wasn't like the movies where people go, Hello, Mr. Mailman. Yeah, just, How are you today? Yeah, yeah. People never talked to me. I, after three years, one lady had a, I had a COD for her. Yeah. That's the first time I saw her, and she said, when's the regular guy coming back? And I said, <laughs> no. I, I am your regular guy. Yeah. <laughs> was that in Chicago? Yeah, and, uh, and uh, out and even in the further western suburbs. Yeah. Now, now, tell me, did you, did, how, did you write those songs on your mail route? I wrote Hello in there on the mail route. I wrote Sam Stone on the mail route. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to do once you're on the right street. Yeah. You know? Now with Hello in there, do you do you, was that provoked by a moment? Um, the best I can remember is me hearing um, uh, John Lennon sing uh, Across the Universe, mm-hmm. and it had if I remember right, it had quite a bit of a echo or reverb on yeah. his voice. Yeah. And I got to thinking about it does have a lot of echo. Yeah, about a, go, talking into like a hollow log and going hello, yeah, hello in there, and that led to thinking about talking to a person that trying to get through to him. Yeah, and then that led to talking about uh, old people. people. Yeah, and that's how it came about. Yeah, and I like picking names back in my early songs. I loved picking the right names for the right characters. Uh-huh. You know, Donald yeah. and Lydia and yeah. the guy, Rudy, that the, in Hello in there, Rudy was the dog across the street. The lady would come out at 4 o'clock every afternoon and go, Rudy, Rudy, you know, he'd come in for dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I went, that's the name of this guy's buddy, Rudy. You know? Yeah, yeah. I just like getting, I like the sounds of names. Well, that, well, that's a, that's an important thing about it. You know, I talked to uh, to Jason Isbell about that, you know, where, you know, it, I had to learn from, uh, who taught, uh, Nick Lowe, I, you, you know, he wrote that song for Johnny Cash, The Beast in Me. Yeah. Hell of a song. Right, sure is. And, you know, and I, I just wanted to believe that Nick Lowe lived that life. You know, I wanted to believe that I was talking to the guy that there, lived it. It must, it must have been a part of him sure. in the song. But he said to me, he said, I'm a, I, I write songs. They're not all me. And I'm like, come on, they got to be you. Yeah. But, there, but, but you know, I, I think like when you put this emphasis on names, you know, that song starts to take a life of its own you start to build a life around you know that that yes. becomes part of the poetry of it and those people become real that you that come out of you right right and that that so they're 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 part of you but they're not necessarily you exactly but yeah, they're kind of I mean, all of us yeah right that's the thing about hello in there is a sort of like it's a beautiful sentiment you know about respect and 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 understanding of of people who are aging and, and abandoned in a way just by virtue of the fact that they've lived long enough to be ignored right wow man it's heavy shit so 
<laughs> you know, because they're, they are, the, the thing, it's like the blues music too, where, you know, you're talking about, you know, heavy hearted stuff, but the, but the release of them through music, it, 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 it actually is, it has the opposite effect. I always thought, um, I called my outlook on the world, I called it, uh, optimistic pessimism. Yeah. Admit that there is a, a problem. This right. Is, this is the problem. Give it, give the characters names. Yeah. And then say it. And yeah. so you're, it's kind of like the blues getting yeah. rid of it. And you, you just state it. And if there's a humorous aspect to it, then that enters into it too, as it does in daily life. Yeah. People just don't walk around all the time with their head down. To sure. Something, something, it gets so bad, it gets funny. Sure. You know? It, that, it, ha- it should. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It gets so bad, it gets funny, or it gets ugly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can only cry so long until you start laughing about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Again, <laughs> you know, that's the best case scenario. So now let's talk a little bit about your relationship with uh, with Steve Goodman. Okay. Uh, you know, because Steve Goodman, like I didn't realize until this morning that he passed away so young. Yeah. And, you know, because I remember he he had a, a lot of records out, you know, for a, for a cat who passed away at 36. Yeah. Like, and I remember seeing him when I was a kid. My parents took me to see him. You know, the City of New Orleans was the big song, right? Right. And and but you you aligned yourself with him pretty early, uh, as a producer and as a as a as a cohort, right? Well, Steve was um, he was well um, into the Chicago folk scene when I came along. I, I came. What along. was that scene? Who was there? Um, Steve Goodman, uh, Fred Holstein, Eddie Holstein, the Holstein brothers. Um, uh, this was after. Uh, in the 60s uh-huh. there was a scene evidently in Chicago uh-huh. that it kind of mirrored the Greenwich Village scene uh-huh. you know and uh, from what I understood uh-huh. and then it kind of died out in the late 60s when like psychedelic music got big and all this and then psychedelic late, music won late 60s <laughs> and early 70s Steve Goodman came along I came along the folk scene started coming getting, back getting back and um so you guys were just two different guys we playing. were thrown in i was thrown into the same well like and steve was kind of the king of it he knew he knew every club every club owner knew him yeah and steve came to check me out yeah so and he was like little caesar he was yeah. just like edgar g robinson he steve was about five foot one uh-huh and he'd walk up to you and get right in your face and uh-huh. poke his finger in your chest when he's talking to you. <laughs> and I'm going, who is this guy? <laughs> I'd heard a tape of him singing City New Orleans, and I had pictured in my mind that he was a tall beanpole of a guy with a little goatee. Right. And here this little guy comes in, you know, <laughs> in my <laughs> face. We were became immediate friends. Uh-huh. And he started taking me around and introducing me to people. And it was because of Steve that I, that I got my first record contract. Oh yeah, even before he did. Uh huh. It became his shining moment. Yeah. Uh, he opened some shows for Christopherson, and Christopherson was blown away with Steve's songs and said, "Man, you need to go to New York and get a record contract." He says, "No, you need to come across town and listen to my buddy John Fry." Really? That, that was the kind of guy Steve Goodman was. Uh huh. You know, it was his lightning bolt moment, and he said, "No, no, you got to get in a cab." And you're my buddy. He loved you. He really did. Yeah. And and that's when you met Christopherson? Yeah, that's when I met Chris. Chris came and listened to me 
I had a club where yeah. it, was, it closed already. Uh-huh. Where the waitresses were counting the tips, the uh-huh. floor, floor had been mopped. I was waiting to get paid. Yeah. I had my guitar in the case. Chris comes in with a entourage, and we put four chairs down, and I sat, sat right in front of him on the mic and sang my set. He bought me a beer and said, would you get back up there and sing those songs again <laughs> and anything else you have? Yeah. And I did, and Chris was just... He was obviously blown away. He loved it. Uh, and, and at the time... Were you a fan of his? Yeah, and I couldn't think of a, more of a person that I wanted to play my songs for more uh-huh. than Chris Christopherson. Sure. I, I connected with his, his stuff that he was country, yet he was doing stuff like Bob Dylan. Yeah. He was really saying something uh-huh. in his songs. And there was nobody else I would have rather in the world played my songs for. And here my buddy Steve Goodman dropped him in my lap. Yeah, you know? and play him twice for it. Exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Do you, how, are your memories of that night clear? They are. I got home and uh, I sat on the edge of my bed. And my, my first wife, she was asleep and she woke up and I just said, man, I said, you won't believe what happened. It just happened to me. I said, Chris Christopherson heard my songs and then he wanted me to sing them all over again. And... <laughs> I said, they actually liked me. You know, yeah. It was good, you know. And what'd she say? She said, okay, well, go to bed and <laughs> think about it in the morning, you know. <laughs> but it was... That's amazing. Uh, it was a moment, you know, that was for sure. Chris was the one that introduced me to Bob Dylan back in 1971. How'd that go? That All of a sudden, uh, Chris says, uh, hey, come on over. Uh, Carly Simon was opening shows for Chris, and... Chris said, hey, come on over to Carly's place. He goes, I got somebody I want you to meet. Me and Goodman go over there, and we're there for about a half hour, and there's a knock at the door. It's Bob Dylan. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he hadn't been seen in public for about five years. No kidding. Yeah. Because he had the accident. Right. And, yeah. And then he was really you know, trying to be low-key. He's up know? in Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he'd moved. Uh, I think he'd found a place back in the village by then. Oh, okay. It was close to it. Yeah. And... um he comes in and uh, we start passing the guitar around. And uh, uh, about the third song I sing, uh, Bob starts singing with me. And I think, my record's not out yet. And I'm thinking, oh, how did he know my songs? You know, he had gotten a. Uh, Jerry Wexter at Atlantic had sent him a. A free copy. Oh yeah, he, he already knew the words to a couple of my songs. He's checking out the competition. I mean, I, <laughs> I wanted to run to a phone booth and call. I don't know who. Like, <laughs> call home and tell him what I'm doing. You know, this is still the first record. Yeah, this is when this is before any, everything you know exploded for me. Like, uh, I'm sitting in New York City playing my songs with Bob Dylan. It was it was really crazy. That's crazy. And Chris was my biggest supporter. Chris, um, I gotta say that. Um, I didn't realize this until after I was in the music business for uh-huh. a while. Chris didn't introduce me to his manager. He didn't introduce me to his publisher, uh-huh. his label. He didn't try and steer me anywhere except towards good people mm-hmm. and just let things Artists. Ha- happen. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, and I don't, I don't know many people in the music business that wouldn't at least say, Hey, well, come on, you know, with yeah. me, and I'll publish your music or yeah. something. Yeah, Chris didn't want to do anything but good things to me. You know? Well, yeah, he's like uh, I, I have no sense of uh, he's a powerful dude as a presence and as a as an is. artist. Certainly, as a, as a as a human. Yeah, 
I have no sense of him as a, as a person because like I don't know him, but I know his his songs, I know his acting work, and I know that like he's he seems intimidating to me. But he, he's not really. I mean, no. he, he yeah, he he just has that thing about him that yeah. Yeah. yeah, he wrote some good songs, man. Well, he sure he sure did, and he sure put Nashville uh, back in a real good place. Like, did he? How so? By writing those songs, uh -huh. it, it uh, gave a new standard to uh, it opened some doors. For, oh, really? Yeah, for Nashville people, because Nashville's country music is very conservative. I'm, uh -huh. not, I'm not talking politically, but, right? You know, it was it takes a lot to change back then what's entrenched yeah, what, yeah what's in it? and uh chris came along singing songs uh not just love songs but songs about people being in bed and yeah they didn't, they didn't talk about that you know? right right you know yeah we uh, assume that uh, that george and tammy were having sex but yeah, they didn't talk about exactly. it exactly <laughs> they didn't take the ribbon from their hair you know? yeah, yeah 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 so yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh chris like uh just so eloquent his songs were but they were still down at home. Uh huh. Yeah, and yeah, that's something you share with him. That's much. He must have seen you as a kindred spirit. Well, he he did, and I didn't believe it. Yeah, it happened just like a dream. Yeah, really, it's, a, really it's amazing. And I imagine Dylan, like you know, I can't get a sense of him. How the hell can you? You know, what Dylan are you dealing with? You know, he's a fascinating guy, and he's obviously written some great songs. But I imagine that Bob Dylan heard your songs and immediately knew it was something that he probably couldn't do. You know what I mean? That you know, Dylan writes Dylan songs, but your songs are so efficient and poetically beautiful, and 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 full of a, a, a an energy that isn't verbal fireworks necessarily, but something that kind of grows as you hear it. You know, I imagine he was like, you know. God, that guy's just nailing it, and it's so tight. But there's no way that the I can't say this for Christopher, yeah. but if Bob Dylan hadn't come along in the '60s mm -hmm. and wrote those uh, those songs he did before he went sure. electric and the stuff afterwards, yeah. um, none there, of you would there, be there. There's no way I would I would have uh, wrote a bluegrass song, maybe sure. or something. Yeah, I wouldn't have tried to go through the he. He not only opened the door for people, he made that door. Yeah. And said, here's the door. Right. <laughs> Come on in, you <laughs> yeah. know. And, like, um, there's a... I, I guess can't, I true. can't imagine how many people wouldn't have taken that step to be a songwriter or something if Bob hadn't done that first. Right. Know? And he, I forget, though, you know, like, he, it's easy to forget just that, that Bob Dylan has done everything. Yes. That, like, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do, and then you're going to look up at the, you know, mountain that is Bob Dylan. Right. And that's what that is. Like, you know, because he, uh, he did Blood on the Tracks, Nashville Skyline. He did some very sort of earnest country folk records. And it's because he, he had a big love for country music. Yeah. He still does, I believe. Yeah, no, I, I he's out there, too. These guys who are 80 going... <laughs> what? I don't think nobody... They, you did this for so long. What else are you going to do? I guess that's true. I mean, but you, so you don't want to sit down, no? If you sit down, you're gonna rust, you know. <laughs> I get, yeah, because you know, do you go back to the post office. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, you know. Well, what about just not work? That and I do that very good. Yeah, you're good at that. I really do. Yeah, I'm good at hiding. I, I leave the house so it appears to my family that I'm going to work or something. Uh huh. And I don't come home till about five. Uh huh. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And this way, it still looks like I do something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So now the other guys. So you came out. So yours was you're sort of the second wave punk, uh, folk 
uh, uh, revival then. So Dylan was the first. Is that how that works? Uh, that's the way I saw it, yeah. And and who else was in your, your group? Was Tim Harden one of you guys? Well, because of the way I was brought up, yeah. it was Bob Dylan and equal doses of Hank Williams right, Sr. sure. Because I was trying to impress my dad. Yeah, sure. And I wanted to... Uh, Those wrote, are good songs. I wrote the song Paradise for my dad. Oh, yeah. That was his story. Uh-huh. And I wanted him to recognize himself in a song. Did he? He did. He he. My dad uh, died about two months before my first record came out. Mm-hmm. And I was able to play the record for him. I took a tape. Uh, I bought a tape player and took it... Uh, I didn't have a vinyl thing on my record yet. Yeah. I had a tape and uh-huh. I played it for him. And Paradise was the last song on the record. And he got up when Paradise started and he left the room. And he w- walked into our dining room, sat in the dark, and then came back in the room. And I said, well, I said, well what'd you leave the room for when I played your song? And he said, I wanted to pretend it was on the jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say he got choked up. Well, he probably did. That's uh, why he left the room. Right, right, right. He didn't want to show me. <laughs> Actually, the only time I can remember ever seeing my father cry was when uh, uh, Hank Sr. died. Oh, yeah. I was just a little kid, and I saw my dad sitting by the uh, this big radio down in the basement, and just the, the news had come out about Hank Williams dying. And, yeah. And my dead. dad just, like, thought, you know. Fell out, huh? You know, he was the guy for, for working working people and yeah. country people. And yeah. He, he sang what their life was about. Yeah. Great songs, right? Great, great songs, and and his voice was, it had that thing in it. Yeah, thing. yeah, and he was young. What was he like in his twenties? Twenty-seven, right? I think. Isn't that crazy, man? It really is, considering how many great songs he wrote. Yeah, it's re- it's amazing with the like even with the you know I was talking about Buddy Holly the other day, who wrote some pretty amazing songs and a lot of songs. You know, I think he was pretty young too. Wasn't he was he? very young. And so, so Cropper and Dunn. So Cropper, how, how do you hook up with him? How do you decide to do a record with Steve Cropper? And what were you, what were you trying to get? Did you want some of that stack sound in there? Or? I met Steve. I guess I met him out here mm-hmm. and got to talking with him and uh, found out he was still back in Memphis. I made my first record in Memphis mm-hmm. at the old American Studios, Chips Moments place, and uh, I liked there was something about Memphis. Yeah, it's only two hundred miles from Nashville, but it is so different. How so? It's a more, oh, it's a more Memphis is more deep south. Sure, and where Nashville back then at least identified more with the Charlotte, North Carolina, like it was southeastern. Uh huh. You know, and Memphis was. Does that mean more big city in a southern way? Uh, wanting to be. Yeah, yeah. Wanting to be right, more, right, more right. a big southern city. Uh huh. And Nashville now is bustling. It's a it is a big. Oh yeah, city I love now. it. Yeah, yeah, I love going and down it's there. It's growing like crazy every day. I'm surprised Jack White hasn't pulled you into the studio yet. I have not had the pleasure of meeting Jack White. You have not yet, met him yet. No, but I, I love him. I love his playing. Oh, what? Yeah. How you should? He should get you in there. He'd be, you know, he'll he'll have you come over for a one-off. He'll just well, cut a single with you. I don't seek out people. I, I, <laughs> I prefer bumping into him. You know, you know how do you not bump into that guy in Nashville? He's, you know, you certainly know him from about a mile away. He's a yeah, big, tall dude. Well, I would imagine, you know, our yeah. time will come. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, so, all right, so you do that record with uh, with Steve, and, you know, what's your relationship? How much with it? Because it looks like you got, you know, Jackson Brown's on there doing his uh, backup vocals, and he's another guy I imagine has a tremendous amount of respect for you. Jackson, I knew real early when he did his first album. He came through Chicago and played the 
the little folk club with uh-huh. Goodman and I got started. Uh-huh. That saturate before using. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, and he had Man. one great song after another on there. Crazy. So, yeah. so we met him at Jackson early on and he became a buddy of ours as the few times we came out to LA early on. And Bonnie? And Bonnie, me and Bonnie were buddies from the get-go. Yeah. Like, we used to tour uh, her her bass player, Freebo, Bonnie. Uh-huh. Bonnie had a dog named Prune. Uh-huh. And Bonnie's brother, Steve, um, was would drive the station wagon. And uh-huh. We'd go out on tour together, and it was just great. You She's know? a hell of a guitar player, huh? Oh, man. I mean, Bo- Bonnie was, even at the, that age, when she was in her early 20s, she could yeah. play that bottleneck guitar like yeah. She was not messing around. Yeah. She learned from the masters, you know. Where did she come from? Bonnie, um, you know, her dad was John Raitt, the, yeah. the you know, Broadway musicals and oh, really? the pajama game. He was the guy. No kidding. Yeah. So she's a New York kid? Yeah. And um, they were Quakers. Uh-huh. And uh, Bonnie was raised, I believe, I think more out this way. Uh-huh. You know, but she went to school around Boston and... Um, fell in with that Boston, uh, what was left of the folk scene right. in Boston, which was a heavy bass blues scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... Um, That's where she picked it up. She picked it up, you know? That's interesting that, that she comes from that, like John Hammond Jr., another right, guy. Right, I mean, she came here, Barney came from a, a musical family, right. but it was a total different Different part type. Of, different part of music, you mm-hmm. know, and she just picked up on the blues early on and... Loved it. Loved it, and that's what she wanted to do. You know John Hammond, Jr.? I met John. I hadn't seen him now in years, Brad. Hell of a player. Uh, he surely is. Wow. And think to be the son of, like, his dad. Yeah, was, yeah. His dad, without his dad, no Bob Dylan. And that's his dad. <laughs> his dad and... Um, no Billy Holiday. His dad's right up there with Sam Phillips. and No doubt. Everybody, those guys... They, they, they knew enough they, to record the geniuses. They weren't musicians themselves. They right? were very intuitive to know... Yep. whether somebody really had something unique mm-hmm. and they would recognize it and give them space to grow so yeah and also the uh the, well jd souther another great songwriter yes jd's wonderful last time i saw jd with me and my kids were, one of my boys were out here with me the last couple of days and he reminded me when snakes on a plane came out we me and my boys wanted to go see it there was nobody in the theater, right? Right. Just before the lights go down, there's one other guy. It's J.D. Souther. <laughs> <laughs> so we go sit with J.D. and we all watch Snakes on a Plane. That's weird. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's an odd moment. And is that your brother he played on that record, too? On, uh, uh, Dave, on, on Common Frank. Sense? Yeah. On, uh, uh, let's see. Dave played on um, a couple of my records, but I don't think he played on, on Common, on Common Sense? Sense. Yeah. Yeah. And ha- and did, did, was that did he have a music career uh, of his own? Uh, My oldest what? brother, he just played an old timey band, and they played around Chicago forever. Some. Yeah, he was a my brother uh, that was a musician, Dave Prine. He's still in Chicago, and Dave was uh, a whiz kid. Dave, Dave yeah. was the brain of the family. Yeah, he actually went to college and got a degree. And, yeah, you know, still around. Yeah, and he he would lecture. He's retired now, but. He still plays music. Yeah, you guys you know, tight. We played music down. Oh yeah, we played music down at the family reunion together. Ah, oh, that's great. I try and get up there for a Cubs game or uh-huh. you know. Uh huh. And um, well, that's good that you got the relationship still, huh? Oh, definitely. I love my brothers. And how many you got? 
I had three, and we lost one a couple of years, about five years ago. Uh-huh. My brother Doug. Yeah. He was a retired Chicago policeman. Oh, wow. Living up in uh, Northern California. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah, he was a wild one of us. <laughs> he, Doug was the one that I wanted to be like. Him. Yeah. <laughs> Doug was the guy that drove around on a motorcycle. Yeah, he, yeah. He'd drive it one block and push it for three blocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after you did, like, when you made your own label, like, that, I mean, you see, and you still have uh, Old Boy Records, so that was after after Storm Windows. So everything after that is all you. you yes. It's all your stuff. Yep. And I, now, and, uh, and how, when, you got a new record coming out soon? Yeah, we got a record, uh, called for better or worse yeah it's a collection of a, a boy girl duets yeah i did that one about 15 years ago called in spite of ourselves and we didn't wasn't lucinda on that one uh lucinda was on in spite of ourselves yeah yeah and her sang two uh, hank williams songs aren't isn't she something she, uh, lucinda's uh otherworldly i believe as a poet and a songwriter yeah. and yeah she's determined too she she goes out there and does Real it, deal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've yeah. had her in here. She's out on the road all the time too. Yeah. She's she's wonderful. And who's on this one? This one is um we got uh Allison Krauss. Oh yeah. Iris DeMint. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love Iris. And Susan Tedeschi. Oh yeah. Uh, she came in with a George Jones song I'd never heard before. No kidding. Called The Color of the Blues and me and her tore it up and man, I, I, she turned out to be a, a we we're real good buddies now. Yeah, all it took was one song. Yeah, know? and she's just a great performer, great singer. Yeah, yeah. And then we got uh, Miranda Lambert uh-huh. and uh, Casey Musgrave and uh, some of the new girls. You know. Yeah. And um, Kathy Mateo, uh-huh. um, whom I'm leaving out. Holly Williams. Uh huh. You know, she's Hank Junior's daughter. Yeah, I have uh, I have her record. We did a song that her grandma was famous for. Oh, really? That Audrey's used to sing with with Hank Senior. Uh huh. Called "I'm Telling You." Oh yeah. Yeah, she when she found out that was the song I wanted her to sing, she was just thrilled to be able to sing one of her grandma's songs. Oh, that's you know? sweet. And that, now, how about how about original material? What are you churning out these days? I'm I'm writing very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, trying to get. 10 that I really like, and hopefully by the beginning of next year, get another John Prine record out there, you know. I'll tell you, man, it's like you've had a you've had a rough go of it, you know, health-wise, not recently. I have been, I've been really lucky with it, too. I, I'll tell you, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it was some uh, heavy stuff, man. It, it, it was, but at the time, I felt... Um, well, you got hit with one cancer, right, I, first. I, di- I did, and um, it was a uh, neck cancer. Uh-huh. But it actually turned out the primary was at the base of my tongue. Uh-huh. And so it was smaller than the head of a pen, so uh-huh. it took them a long time to get that. Yeah. Once they did, it didn't spread anymore, but they had to to do some radical surgery on my neck in order to get rid of the nodes that had already been affected. Right, right. By. And I got a great doctor down in M.D. Anderson in Houston, Texas. Uh-huh. And, boy, he said, I'm going to get this, and I'm going to stop it from spreading. And this is what we have to do. And once you find the right doctor, yeah. the doctor that you believe in, yeah, and you got something like anything related to cancer, that's half of the you've licked it then, sure, because you can put yourself in their hands. Yeah, I keep telling people that if like if you don't feel intuitively that you're talking to the right person, go talk to Someone, another one. Yeah, right. 
because they all have different ways they want to do it. Yeah, that's the scary part. And he didn't he didn't get your vocal cords or anything. No, he he he, he didn't know. He knew I was a singer, but yeah, turned out my radiologist yeah. was a fan, and he wasn't supposed to tell me. Oh, <laughs> so he actually built a little shield just over my vocal cords. When he got to, the radiation, to, yeah, to keep the vocal cords from getting the hardest part of the the hottest part of the yeah. radiation. And uh, when he told me he was doing that, I said, "Have you ever heard me sing?" <laughs> I said, "Because I, I, I said if I, I said if I can talk after this, I said I can sing." <laughs> You know, it might sound different than I did before, but I said, all I do is say words, and then at the end of the line, I draw it out so people know it's the end of a sentence. You know? Did he get a laugh out of that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. It turned out he had all my records. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's great. And uh, and then you got hit with another one. Just uh, about five years ago. Yeah. Uh, with the, they, excuse me, it was lung cancer, but it, I mean, they must have caught it within a couple of months of it just starting. Uh huh. Only because if you're a previous cancer patient, yeah. you get checked out. Right. Like uh, like normal people don't. Right. So I would get a chest X-ray every six months for no other reason than you had cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And they saw this right away. They were asked what I wanted to do, and I said, "Please go in and cut it out." tell me that I don't have cancer no more. That's that's what I want you to do. <laughs> right. They did. They didn't have to follow it up with uh, radiation or chemo. Uh-huh. It was that fresh. It was that new. No kidding. And uh, I guess unless you go get regular tests, that, that you wouldn't get it that early. Oh, you got lucky. Yeah, very. Uh, I've just been extremely lucky with bo- both times with the cancer that I got the right doctors. Yeah, you seem good. Uh, I, I feel good, you know. Yeah, yeah. So when you come out to Hollywood now, what, you know, what, what are you out here for this time? This time is, is purely stuff I never do. I'm doing interviews because yeah. of that uh, record that's coming out. Yeah, and uh, well, I'm looking forward to it. And you, and you hung out with Sturgill the other night. Uh, I had a great time. Sturgill's wonderful. He, uh, I met him about, a, I guess it was just about a year ago, and I heard his uh, second record. Yeah, I met yeah. a modern one. Yeah. And I thought, boy, this guy's... He's on to something. Right. Know? He's really got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. Yeah, real deal. And uh, he ended up doing uh, his latest record in the studio that I'm kind of a partner in. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd drop in every once in a while. And here, one day he'd have a, a steel player in there. Yeah. Next day they had these horns, r yeah. horns. <laughs> And then I dropped it a third time, and he had a Moog synthesizer. <laughs> and I thought, all right, Sturgill, you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a vision. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mixing it up. Well, there's a whole crew down there that are really sort of like getting back, not unlike, I think, the uh, the folk revival. There is, there is a, a, a sort of true country music revival going on. With that guy Cobb, the guy who uh, what's his name, Dave, Dave Cobb. Cobb, yeah, Dave Cobb, that seems to really get like what those George Jones records sounded like and what those Waylon Jennings records sounded like before, you know, uh, I think country got a little desperate commercially. That there was a way of producing country records that was clean, but you know, specifically country sounding. You you hear that, or am I making that up? No, I, I do hear it. What what? Nashville became is is it became commercial. Yeah, I mean, really commercial. They were if they can make money doing that, no matter what they call it. Right, they're going to keep on doing it until it stops making money. Yeah, 
But because I agree with what you said about this coming along, this wave yeah. of yeah of songwriters like Jason Isbell, yeah, and yeah, Chris Stapleton, and that that it's all. I truly believe in music goes in it goes in sure, circles. Sure. You know, yeah, people don't take so much of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of whatever you call it, right? And uh, they want the real stuff again, and it's coming around. Uh, I'm gonna be seventy this year, and so I've seen it happen before. It yeah. just it takes you just gotta have patience. Yeah, you know, yeah. Wait till it comes around again. Yeah. What I do is I'm able to go out anytime and play as much as I want or as little as I want. And people and I'm, come. I'm lucky that the people are still out there. And oh yeah, they, they want to hear those songs. They you know? love you. They love you. And I and I had a, it's a real honor to talk to you. And I thank you for coming by. Oh, uh, Mark, thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful man, beautiful music, amazing story. I I was beside myself to spend time with that guy. I hope you enjoyed that. You can go to WTFpod.com slash tour to see my upcoming tour dates. All right? I got sweet, man. Boomer lives! <laughs>